Here we go. Uh, we're in week two of spiritual gifts. If you have your Bibles, it would be really helpful if you had your Bibles tonight. Not that it isn't helpful on other times, but um, we're just turn to 1 Corinthians 12, and essentially that's where we'll be. Um, I'm going to give you a bunch of overviews and stuff. Uh, this is the one night I'm pretty sure we'll go to eight. I'm not sure about the rest of the time, but um, we didn't quite make it last week, but tonight I think we will. Uh, for th- weeks three and four, just a reminder of what's coming in the next uh, two of the next three weeks. Remember, the 22nd is Ash Wednesday. So we'll skip from week three to Ash Wednesday and then week four on March 1st. But week three will be Romans 12 and Ephesians 4. And the subtitle is uh, Walking in a Manner Worthy of Your Calling in the Gospel. And then week four will be 1 Peter 4. I'm sorry, 2 Peter 4. One of the Peters, 4. <laughs> and uh, it's... Uh, uh, talking about how uh, it's counter- the gifts are countercultural, and then we're going to be looking at assessments and inventories and stuff like that. Tyler will be with me. Tyler James will be with me that night to help operate the, the big screen TV that we'll have out here, and we'll ask one of you to kind of go through and take a couple of you to go through and take the assessments. And you can also pull it up on your phones or your pads or whatever you have. So uh, let's review week one. We need to remember that the spiritual gifts are not for. Uh, the, the uh, building up or the edification or the glory of the individual, but rather for the building up, strengthening, edification, and service of the church. The spiritual gifts are not the fruit of the Spirit. They're not talents or strengths, and they're not developed virtues or character, though all of those things can enhance the gifts, the, the manifestation exercise of the gifts. And then finally, um, Christians have more than one spiritual gift, but they usually have one or two primary gifts. I have, as I've taken the assessments, I have apparently three, three primary gifts and three supporting gifts of the 24 to 26. So uh, 1 Corinthians 12 tonight, and then I'll read through 13 at the end also because uh, really there shouldn't be a chapter division. Probably there shouldn't be a chapter division between 12, 13, and 14, but... Um, overview of 1 Corinthians, the book, to help you put chapter 12 in context. Then I'll give you an overview of chapter 12. Then we'll read through it and start unpacking it. And I hate to start our deeper dive into the gifts with a somewhat negative example, but this is really where we need to start because 1 Corinthians 12 is the most expansive, comprehensive, and informative passage in the Bible about the gifts, but it's also born out of the Corinthians misuse and abuse of the spiritual gifts so there's going to be some some negativity to this as well but it's helpful and instructional for us Um, but it's going to be so helpful for us to lay a foundation for the rest of this series by going through uh, this chapter first Uh, the context for Paul writing about spiritual gifts uh, is different in 1st Corinthians 12 than when he talks about them in Romans and Ephesians in those two books he talks about the gifts within the context of how a Christian is to use their gifts for the edification and encouragement of the church, and, and he's very upbeat about the gifts there. In 1 Corinthians, he talks about the gifts in a context of trying to correct the Corinthians in their disordered and unhelpful way that they are doing church. Disordered and unhelpful way that they are doing church. But it's a part of a much larger narrative in 1 Corinthians, which I'll tell you in just a minute. Um, He still teaches that the purpose of the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 are to build up and encourage the church, 
But here he's also chastising the Corinthians for their failure to properly understand the gifts and to quit using their gifts as a way to look or feel superior to others. In chapter 12, the gifts are just one of the many problems that Paul is trying to correct in Corinth. For instance, starting in chapter 7, he's trying to correct all sorts of misguided marital problems. And then in chapter 8, he's trying to correct the problem of syncretism. Syncretism is the idea that uh, in the church that you take the gospel and you say, yeah, Jesus is good, gospel good, but we're going we're gonna to syncretize it or meld it with all kinds of other uh, um, uh, false gods and philosophies from the world, and we're going to mix it all up into something that we like and prefer uh, over and against just the gospel. So it's the gospel plus a bunch of other stuff. And sometimes that syncretism can actually be doctrines in the church, but most of the time, especially in Corinth, it was them mixing things with um, the temple worship where most of these people came out of this, the pagan temple worship. In chapter 9, he was talking about, he was trying to correct the Corinthians' poor understanding of authority and discipline, which of course he spends most of 2 Corinthians trying to do. And then chapter 10, he gets after them about idolatry and idol worship, false gods. Uh, and the, again, the temple worship that they came out of. Chapter 11, he gets on them about the disorderly worship services that they were having. The, the, the worship services were just like a melee when you'd walk into them in Corinth. Um, and the tremendous violations of how they were practicing the Lord's Supper in, in, in uh, the church in Corinth. So he was very upset about how they practiced the Lord's Supper, and he corrected that, which then leads into his corrective teaching in chapter 12, about how they're abusing and, and, and misusing spiritual gifts. And one of the most interesting parts of this correction, and why, again, I'm not a fan of chapter divisions, is that chapter 13, in chapter 13, Paul then explains that if love is not at the center of using and exercising your spiritual gifts, please don't bother. <laughs> don't bother unless you use them uh, it, with an attitude and an ethos of love. Then in chapter 14, um, he goes on to correct them specifically about tongues and prophecy, how they're misusing those gifts very specifically, and again, the problem with disorderly worship services because of how they were using the spiritual gifts was causing disorder in, this, in the worship services. And then finally, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, Paul must teach them the truth and the true doctrine about the resurrection of Jesus because they have that wrong as well. So here's an overview of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, and then we'll go deeper. Paul starts chapter 12 by saying that we need to have a properly doctrined, gospel-centered understanding of the gifts because they are no longer pagans. They are now Christians. They're Christ followers, so they need to exercise them in a manner that's worthy of the gospel. Then he explains that even though there are many gifts, many different gifts, they all come from the same source. There's one spirit. There's one Lord, there's one God. And then he lists some, not all, but some of the spiritual gifts. And then for the bulk of chapter 12, starting in verse 12, Paul goes on what some call his unity but diverse treatise. He explains that there is one body, the church, but there are many members, all with different gifts, and that is good, and that's the way it's supposed to be. And he chastises anyone who thinks their gift makes them superior to others. 
He chastises those who think they can tell someone that their gift is not needed, it's not important enough, it's not good enough, it's not like my gift. And he chastises those who think that they need to withdraw from the church because they've been convinced that their gift is not spiritual enough or special enough or good enough. And then finally at the end of chapter 12, before he discusses our need (coughs) to apply and manifest the gifts in love, He lists a few more gifts. Uh, So let me read chapter 12, and then we'll come back and unpack it. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and you sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, uh, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, varieties of service, but the same Lord, varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another, the working of miracles, to another, prophecy, to another, the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another, various kinds of tongues, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by, by one and the same spirit who apportion to each one individually as he wills. Now, don't worry. At the end of our study tonight, I will go back and give definitions of each of these gifts, including the gifts that he closes chapter 12 with. Uh, verse 12, for just as the body is one with, and has many members, and all the members of, one bo- um, of the body, though many, uh, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink from one, uh, of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again to the head, uh, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, uh, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unrepresented parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess the gifts of healing, 
Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? Those are rhetorical questions, and the answer is no to each one of those. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. So in verse 1, and we'll come back and reread some of those, but verse 1, Paul moves from the bad practices the Corinthians were engaged in when it came to communion, the Lord's Supper, to bad practices that they were engaged in when it came to spiritual gifts. And he starts by saying, I don't want you to be ignorant about the gifts. I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be, um, I don't want you to have all the information you need to be able to use the gifts properly and manifest them properly. So Paul's referring to the fact that many Christians, many Corinthian Christians, are coming out of the pagan temple worship culture and into the church and into Christianity and practices from those temples in Corinth, which they were very famous for, do not apply in the gospel faith nor in Christian community. There is no pantheon of gods in the church of Christ. We don't worship many gods. Um, there is one God manifest in the Holy Spirit who distributes the gifts to members of one body, that of Jesus Christ, the church, of which Jesus is the head. But then in verse 2, why the reference to mute idols? So here's a question. Why would anyone worship a God that cannot communicate? Anybody want to take a shot at answering? Well, if the God can't communicate with you, you control the God. Okay. So what does that make you? You're the God. Isn't that wonderful? I love it. Okay. Um, and, and these were the gods that they were worshiping in the Corinthian temples. It's so convenient when we can conjure our own gods, isn't it? It's so wonderful. Of course, they can't do anything for us. We think they can, but they can't do anything for us. We're going to talk a lot about idolatry and false gods and all that in this series in, in uh, Isaiah. It seems to be... Um, God's bailiwick through these 16 chapters other than the fact that he's going to redeem his people. But he keeps reminding them that it's false gods, it's idolatry as to why they're going into exile in the first place. But consider the fact that we just constantly conjure our own false gods. It's Martin Luther's famous saying, God created us in his image and we've been returning the favor ever since. So let's understand what it was that the Corinthians primarily used their gods for. What did the Corinthians primarily use their temple gods for, which they also wanted to try to do in the church through the spiritual gifts? What were they trying to, what were they primarily, not just, but primarily using the temple gods for? Anybody want to take a shot? You would, you would make sacrifices to them, but you would make a sacrifice to these false gods so that the god would do something. What was that? Give you power? Yes, but what else? There were prostitutes there. That was part of the sacrifice. I have to, sac I have to sacrifice tonight. I'm going to go be with a prostitute. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's, that's what they did, male and female prostitutes, okay? Okay, here you go. They also primarily used the gods to cast a curse on other people that they didn't like in the community. They were using the gods in theory. It's voodoo. They were using the gods to try to cast curses, cast curses on other people 
in the community that they didn't like. Do you see anything like that in the New Testament? The only time you see something like that in the Bible is when somebody is using uh, Satan or demons to try to do something like that. You don't, you don't see it otherwise. What, what, do, what do we do in the New Testament? We're engaged in intercessory prayer for other people, including our enemies, people we don't like. That's, that's my favorite part. I, I, I wake up every morning and say, I can't wait to pray for those people that I don't like. <laughs> I'm, of course, kidding. It's a, it's a discipline. It's a discipline, but that's what we're called to do, okay? And we're called to love, serve, encourage, and build others up by using our gifts, not by cursing others. That's not what was happening in Corinth. And unfortunately, this teaching is still relevant today because it happens in churches today, too. It's one of the reasons why we study this stuff. The, the gifts for so many people in churches are about the person who has the gift and their glory, and their building up, and their edification, and their attention, and not for the church. So Paul says in verse 3, because the Holy Spirit lives in Jesus, and Jesus in the Spirit, there's no way to curse in the name of Jesus, and there's no way to curse Jesus or others. So rather than, uh, rather we are gifted for the purpose of building up the church. That's verse 7, for the common good. We are to use the gifts for the common good. And then verses 4 through 11 are really important to understand. There are problems in Corinth with people trying to use their gifts to curse and denigrate others. And look at the gifts that Paul calls out that are being abused. Some people would refer to these gifts, have referred to these gifts, as what you call the special effects gifts. That's how some people have sort of nicknamed them, the special effects gifts, or... They, they describe them as spiritual gifts that were only available in the apostolic age. They were gifts that were only available until about 100 AD. And then they ceased to exist. Some of the gifts continued, some of them stopped. And, the, and most of the ones that Paul is talking about here, uh, what, what's known as a cessationist, do, they have a doctrine of cessationism. Some gifts cease, these are the gifts that they say stopped at the end of the apostolic age. And if you've never heard of that before, uh, you might be surprised to know that there are a number of different Christian traditions, Protestant Christian traditions, that believe these gifts stopped at the end of the first century. Okay? It's called cessationism, the belief that tongues, prophecy, healings, miracles, and utterances ceased at the end of the first century. I am not a cessationist. I want to make sure you hear that. Okay? Now, I, I, I study communication and teach communication. I have a master's in communication. I know with the number of people who are here right now, if I don't say it again, somebody's going to walk out of here tonight and go, Frank's a sensationist. I heard him say it. It came right out of his mouth. I just know that's true. I get the emails. I get the phone calls. Trust me. Okay? I made the mistake one Sunday morning of bringing up a movie that I saw that I did not recommend anybody else seeing. Don't go see this movie. And somebody in our church went out and watched it that afternoon <laughs> on my recommendation and then called me Monday very angry at me. You recommended this movie. I did not. Yes, you did. I wrote it down in my notes. Okay. Go and listen to the podcast of the sermon and call me back. Ten minutes later, she called back. 
Okay, you didn't recommend it. But why did you watch it? <laughs> anyway, I am not a, sens a cessationist. I am a sensationalist. I'm not a cessationist, okay? I don't believe these gifts have ceased. But <laughs> I have so many, many, many times seen these gifts abused, practiced in unbiblical ways, and lorded over others, just like the Corinthians were doing, so I understand Paul's concern. And I understand why some people would just assume they went away, because they have been so desperately abused and used in unbiblical ways. And I'm just going to give you some examples now. This is from my own experiences over and over. And some of you have heard the one illustration I'm going to give you in just a second, but here, here's one. The person who says, you aren't really saved. You're not really a Christian until you learn how to speak in tongues. And I can teach you how to speak in tongues. It's a gift. You don't teach it. Okay? Now, you can, you can develop it once you have it, but you, it's a gift of the Spirit. Either you speak in tongues or you don't. But there are churches that have classes you must learn to speak in tongues or you're not a Christian. Come and we will teach you how to speak in tongues. Okay? That's heresy. That's false teaching. Turn around and run the other way. Okay? Here's another one. I have the gift of prophecy, which means I can tell the future and you can never question me. I've heard that many times. Now, this is my favorite one about the gift of prophecy. I have the gift of prophecy, so I get to tell you what to do and you have to do it. So my first semester teaching as an adjunct instructor 25 years ago at Grand Canyon University, I was teaching in the, um, uh, what do you call it, the uh, adult continuing education department. So these are all students 25 years and older working on uh, a bachelor's degree because they didn't finish in the traditional time like me. I was on the 19 year plan in case you were wondering. It took me 19 years to get my bachelor's degree. Um, anyway. Uh, the, on their bachelor's, or they were um, working on their Master of Arts in teaching. And uh, so I was in a class, it was uh, spiritual leadership. It was a 400-level class, so it was part of the bachelor program, and there were 15 people in the class. <clears throat> and I had two students in there that were going to a, uh, a church up in North, North Phoenix. I won't name the church. Um, if you take me out for a latte, I'd be happy to tell you the name of the church. I can be bought for just a $5, well, if we go to provision, it'll be a $12 latte. Anyway, um, um, so uh, we're in there and we're doing the icebreaker thing. I like to do icebreakers in my classes, so to, to get everybody to know each other, asking them questions. And so we got to these two people and both of them said that they held the office of prophetess at their church. And then they both proceeded to tell me that no matter what I did in terms of grading their papers, it didn't matter because they were going to get an A in the class because they're prophetesses and they hold the office of prophetess in their church. And so I was faced with my very first teaching crisis in my first semester of trying to teach college students, and I think I handled it well. I just said, you're not in charge in this class, I am. The school pays me to be in charge, and my grades uh, are, are going to be the final grades. I don't really care what your office is at your church. This is not your church. This is Grand Canyon University, so figure it out. They both dropped the class. I was so happy. <laughs> I was so happy. Okay? So that, that's it. Then, then there are fraudsters who perform miracles and healings 
on people on stage who are actually in on the con. And we know that that happens as well. Oh, my back hurts. Boom. Ah, it's fine. Okay, it was fine all the time, all right? Um, I have the gift of utterances, so I need to randomly speak out during a church service. Now, some of you were around eight or nine years ago when it wasn't a, 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 a gift of the Holy Spirit, but rather it was a demon who was speaking out in the midst of two of our services. Anybody remember that? Yeah, okay. So that was actually a demon, okay? Um, and then there's, of course, the most obvious one, I think, is the practice of tongues without an interpreter. Uh, the pu- I should say the public practice of tongues without an interpreter. Paul specifically condemns this in chapter 14. Now, I know, I know that some of you may not care for this illustration that I'm going to make about, uh, I'm going to make a point about uh, the problem with abusing the gifts. It's a sort of a, an analogy, but I think it's pretty accurate. So here we go. In the last 10 years, there has been a significant growth in the number of proven false rape accusations. A significant growth in the number of proven false rape accusations. Do you know what the biggest problem is with those who falsely accuse someone else of rape? Here's what's happening. It cheapens and dilutes the genuine charges of rape. It makes it much more difficult for the authorities to believe genuine rape accusations. And it mocks those who have actually been raped. That's just wrong. So when you abuse the gifts, it's the same thing. There, there have to be people who have these gifts legitimately who are kind of sick and tired of the people that, are not, that don't have them legitimately but are using them and abusing them in the improper ways. It's got to be true. And then there's people like me who, who sort of doubt it until you can prove that it's real rather than just accepting on the face value that it's real. This is Paul's problem with the church in Corinth. Like I said, I'm sorry we have to start with a negative example, but this is what's happening in Corinth, and Paul gets after it. So these gifts are cheapened, deluded, disbelieved, and mocked when people abuse them, practice them in unbiblical ways, and use them to try to claim superiority over others. Again, I don't believe these gifts have ceased, but I've seen them abused so many times that I can understand why there are people who are staunch cessationists Um, There are a couple pastors who have even written books about why these gifts have ceased, and these books have been published, okay? Now, we will get to defining the, uh, for good, the gifts. We're going to get to that in in a little while, don't worry, but Paul still needs to do some correcting. So let me reread 12 through 20. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of of the body, though many, are, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit... We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. The foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. The ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were single, a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. So what's going on here? One thing Paul is doing in verse 12, all the way to verse 27, is he's pointing out the decided lack of grace and unity in the Corinthian church. There's very little grace, very little unity. 
So Paul opens in the first two verses, 12 and 13, with a teaching illustration from the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, specifically focused on the Spirit. Then in 14 through 20, he discusses one of the major disunifying problems of the improper application of spiritual gifts. And then in 21 through 26, he finishes with the second major disunifying problem, the improper application of the gifts presents in Corinth. And these problems, of course, can plague churches today and do plague churches today as well. So first of all, look at verses 12 and 13. Let's talk about the relationship of the Godhead, the Trinity. We worship one God manifest in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, would you say their relationship is one of competition, of one, is, is one of discord, is one of friction and tension, and is one of boasting? Is that how their relationship works? Obviously not. Now, I would say, actually, yes, there is a little bit of boasting in the Godhead. Each member of the Trinity only boasts about the other two members of the Trinity. So there is boasting in the Trinity, but they're only boasting about the other two. Okay? It's the idea, um, one scholar has called it this, it's the idea of yieldedness or shyness. Shy, the, the, each member of the Godhead is shy towards the other two. Yielded to the other two, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, you'd think, well, the Father's the granddaddy of them all, and yet you look at the Father, and he's constantly pushing the Son forward. And he's talking about the Spirit and how great the Spirit is. It's the same thing with Jesus. Jesus is always talking about the Father and how he's there doing what the Father has told him to do. I only do what my Father tells me, and the Father is, he's the, he's the real deal. And then in John um, 14 through 17, he's talking about how I'm going to go away, but it's going to be better for you because the Spirit is coming. So he's pushing the Spirit forward. And then, and then there's the Spirit who is constantly pushing Jesus and the Father forward. They're always pushing each other forward. Okay. Now, this is not a trick question, but I have to ask. Is that generally how humans behave? <laughs> so you can see in... in the Godhead, we have this beautiful illustration of what gospel-centered relationships should look like. Okay? And think about the different roles of each member of the Trinity. Each member of the Trinity has a different role. So think of each of their roles as their own unique giftedness. Think of it that way. Okay? The giftedness of the Father never overshadows that of the Spirit or Jesus. The giftedness of Jesus never overshadows that of the Father or the Spirit, and the giftedness of the Spirit never overshadows that of the Son or the Father. This is a beautiful example of how we in the church, though many members and each with a diverse gift mix and calling, should live in community, subjected community with each other. But how often do we fail at that? Again, not a trick question. Imagine if everyone in the church had the same gift. Would that be a body? Paul's making that point. Okay? Imagine if one person who had a particular gift believed, as many do, believed that everyone in the church should also be gifted and called in exactly the same way they are. Would that be a body? So, um, Larry Osborne who's a pastor of a church in San Diego. How many of you have heard of Larry? 
Yeah, a number of you. Okay. One of the best books I've ever read um, by a pastor is called, it was originally titled um, A Contrarian's Guide to Knowing God. Has anybody read that book? It's a great book. It's under a different title now. It's been uh, re-released so many times. It was our founding pastor, Tom Schrader's, it was his favorite book. Okay. Um, Contrarian, Contrarian's Guide to Knowing God. He had four chapters in that book talking about and, and one of the chapters was just titled flat out, My Gift and Passion is Not Your Gift and Passion. And the reason he said that is because the church is always filled with people, very good intentions, but who believe that whatever their focus and their giftedness is, the entire church should look like that. And, and we should change the sign in front of the church. We should change the sign in front of the church. To say, we are a church of this, and that's it. And everybody should be all in on that, and not, we're not going to do anything else. Okay? He said, that's a problem, that's not a body, it's not biblical. So imagine the chaos if the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were all trying to outdo each other. What would, I don't think we'd have the New Testament. Okay? What would happen if the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were always talking about how uh, the other two aren't good enough, so they don't belong? You know, the Spirit's like, what did Jesus do? So what? Went to the cross, big deal. I'm the one with the, with the tough assignment. I've been around 2,000 years, you know? Imagine if the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all had exactly the same purpose, role, and reason to exist. We wouldn't need two members of the Trinity. These are all the problems the Corinthians are causing because they are using and applying their gifts for all the wrong reasons. So, verses 14 through 26 are negative exemplars of the illustration and teaching that Paul gives us in verses 12 and 13. So, 14 through 20. Every person's gift mix is important. Gift or gift mix is important to the whole. There are no second-class Christians... By the way, Trey says that all the time. I don't know if you've noticed that. He's always saying that. And he's right. And there are no second-class spiritual gifts. But here's a question. Why would there be people in the church thinking this way, specifically in the Corinthian church? Why would they be there thinking this way? Well, why are there people saying to themselves, I don't belong here, I'm not good enough, I have no part to play? It's because the Corinthians were experts at bringing worldly attitudes and foolishness into the church. I'm so glad that never happens today. <laughs> in the marketplace, in the public sphere, it is important to be on top. I understand that. Even at the expense of putting others down, I get all of that. But now in the church, many were making the case that their gift is better and more important than others. <clears throat> and the reason they were doing that, <clears throat> the reason why they were doing that was because that's the way their life had kind of been trained. So think of it this way. There is no denying that in a body, the members that mediate the senses are really important. Okay? So that would be the eyes, ears, nose, mouth, and skin. Okay, I'm not denying that they aren't important. I'll give you that. Few people, however, I mentioned this last week, few people, however, consider how important it really is to have elbows pinky toes, and thumbs. We just don't think about that, okay? 
But just try to live without elbows, pinky toes, and thumbs. I know some of you are like, I'll take off my pinky toe if I can keep my eyes. I get that. But nevertheless, you're going to find that it's really hard to, to find your balance without your pinky toes. I know it's really small and ugly, and it's really hard to cut that little nail. I know that's really, I, I know, I get that. But still, without the pinky toe, you're in trouble, okay? That's the point that Paul is making. We have no hierarchy of gifts that dismisses some as unimportant because without those gifts, the body doesn't work. One last point here, and Paul is addressing this challenge as well. Over my 36 years as a Christian, it is alarming how many individual people in a church believe that a church body should all be gifted the exact same way they are. I've already mentioned that. I'm mentioning it again because it happens all the time. Okay? They believe a church should just be a nose or an eye or a foot or a pinky toe. It's very unhealthy. It's also very self-absorbed. So next segment, 21 through 26. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresented parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require, but God has so composed the body, giving the greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there, are, there may be no division in the body, that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, we all suffer. If one member rejoices, we all rejoice. So stop thinking you don't need others and their gifts. That's essentially what he's saying there in 21 through 26. And 25 and 26 are the crescendo. The purpose of the gifts is not for division, but for unity and empathy. And because we're unified as a body, we are unified. We participate in both the victories and the sufferings of each other. Uh, Many of you know Jim Moreland. He's one of our elders. Um, he's, He's in a lot of trouble. He'll never recover from the last stroke in a way that'll allow him to do more than pretty much go between his bed and his easy chair with a lot of help. Um, I am just so encouraged by, and by the way, he hasn't been around in three and a half years, okay? I am so encouraged by the number of people in this church and the people on staff who barely know him, who... um, Call him, text him, call his wife, Pat, text her, go by the house, visit, take stuff. It's been amazing to watch this entire church essentially suffering with Jim. It's been, it's been really cool to watch that. That's just one example. Okay, just one example of many in the church, but that's one example. So 27 through 31. Now, you are, uh, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and ver- administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles? Do all possess the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. So verse 27 is a summary statement, and then we start in with some of the gifts. So here you go. 
Some of you are reaching for pens. I can see that. I want to write down these definitions. Okay. The gift of apostleship. If you have this gift, it does not mean you are a first century apostle of Jesus. It's different. Okay. A first century apostle is one who was called by Jesus in person. Like Paul on the road to Damascus and like all the others that Jesus called during the Gospels. What this gift of apostleship means is that you are especially and unusually gifted to communicate and proclaim Jesus as Messiah in contexts where he has never been proclaimed before. That's an important distinction. So let's talk about the gift of evangelism, okay? I never talk to anybody about Jesus because I don't have the gift of evangelism. Okay, now, <laughs> that's a misunderstanding also. We are all called to proclaim Jesus. But some people have this incredibly unusual, special gift of being able to proclaim Jesus where the Spirit just opens doors. And so it's amazing how they can talk to somebody and people are like, oh, yeah, Jesus. And, you know, somebody else can talk to them and they're like, that's great. I have a dental appointment. I'll see you later. Okay. <laughs> People have a special gift of evangelism, but we're all called to evangelize. But there are some people who have a special gift of it, okay? Uh, we're all called to evangelize, but some people have this special gift of apostleship where they are just driven to go to places where the, where, that are very dark where the gospel has rarely, if ever, been proclaimed. They're driven to go to other places in, in the world. A lot of missionaries have this gift of apostleship. Okay, prophecy. Now, this is really important to know. Uh, the way those uh, students were practicing, practicing prophecy is that's not what this gift is. The gift of prophecy is also not someone, it's not someone who hears a message from God and so they have to go and tell somebody else what they must do. That's not prophecy. It's also not someone who can just randomly predict the future. That is also not the gift of prophecy. Okay. Even in the Old Testament, when you read the prophets, 95% of their prophecy has nothing to do with predicting the future. Now, you get some of that in Daniel and in Ezekiel. You certainly get it in Isaiah 40 through 55. But most of it is, is what we would call the New Testament gift of prophecy, which is where you know God's word pretty well or really well. You also have this ability to look at the behavior or trajectory of a person's life. Here's that person. Here's your understanding of the Bible. And you have an unusual gift to be able to put those together and say, hey, if you continue here, this is what's going to happen to you. It's, it's, like an edu it's, it's, it's more than an educated guess. It's an insight to being able to say, don't do this or do this or else this is going to happen. That's what prophecy is. Okay? The gift of discernment often accompanies this gift. The gift of teaching. The gift of teaching is actually pretty simple. It's the ability to teach God's word in a way that unusually helps them, helps the people listening to apply God's word to their lives. Tom Schrader had the gift of teaching. Like nobody's business. By the way, so does um, 
Alistair Begg. So I'll just tell you again, listen to Alistair. Okay. You don't have to move to Ohio. Please don't. <laughs> just listen to his stuff. Miracles or miraculous powers. Now, it's rare to find this gift legitimately today, but I believe it still occurs, that it still manifests. Mostly, this, mir- this gift is associated with the first century apostles and their ability to heal, cast out demons, or raise people from the dead. And through deception, unfortunately, this is one of the misused gifts today. But the gift of miraculous power specifically and uniquely reverses the natural course of something. Now, this is a little, there's some tension here. I don't don't know that you necessarily are the one that is stopping the natural course of things and doing something supernaturally. It's the spirit through you. But for whatever reason, there are people that have this, this gift that the spirit is working through them. They're the conduit. It's the ability to do something supernatural by the power of the Spirit. Now, the casting out of demons, however, is an important gift for the church even today, even in the United States. Um, And I also believe that, again, anyone who is in Christ has the ability to do that. They don't need the special gift of miracles. I have my own experiences with that. Um, I I even have surprised, surprised myself by feeling um, just the thoroughgoing spirit of darkness, of oppression, and being able to just stand out and out loud speaking Jesus' name and essentially saying, I, I'm in Christ, Christ is in me, go ahead, try it. And then it goes away, it dissipates. And I don't have this gift, but I know Christ is in me. Um, and that was, by the way, I, I just honestly, it was a nice affirmation that he really is, okay? Um, healing, it's very similar to miracles. It's the ability to supernaturally overcome the natural course of disease, illness, or disorder. Again, it's a gift that's unfortunately fraught with deception and con artists. However, in places much more desperate than the United States, there are many seemingly bona fide examples and testimonies of these healings happening. South America, Africa. Aren't those more like miracles, though? It's, I think it's one or the other. Well, I don't mean a gift of miracles, but just God forming a miracle. Yeah, God is, God is healing, but, but there's usually somebody there mediating it in some way. That there's testimonies of that happening. So, and, it, and again, it's not a, an achy back. It's, it's something that's provable. And again, I, now, in the United States, there, there have been, in my life, in my Christian life, there have been... I don't know, maybe a handful, five or six times where somebody goes in, gets all the tests, and it's clear that they have cancer. They get retested, it's clear they have cancer, and then they go in for the last test before the treatment starts, and it's gone, and the doctors literally have no way of explaining it. And people have been praying for them. Now, I don't know if that's the giftedness of the person, or just as you said, God decides to work a miracle in that case, to kind of show off. You know, but there is healing that goes on. Um, those who have this gift um, are usually also highly empathetic and compassionate. They just they just have that ability to put themselves in somebody else's uh, position. Um, the gift of helping, again, very simple. This is the person who has an unusual 
an unusually passionate heart for selflessly meeting the needs of others through acts of service and, ab- and availability. What is it? Um, I may be wrong. If somebody knows, correct me. Is it Machiavelli? Ma- is that how you say it? Machiavelli. Machiavelli yeah. Who said the greatest gift you can give somebody else is availability? Mm-hmm. Just your presence? Just your presence. Yeah. Well, I want, to, I want you to know that I have it on very, a very good source. Um, it was in a Bronx tale, the movie. <laughs> I looked it up afterwards. I said, that's really good. I, I, so I, looked, I think it was Machiavelli. Anyway. Uh, the Gift of Administration, Chaz Palmateri, his character. <laughs> I'm trying to remember his name. <laughs> Chas Palmateri. Okay, anyway. Uh, gift of administration. This person is unusually gifted in planning, organizing, and follow-through. They can see both the big picture and be disciplined enough to work out the details. They can see the big picture and disciplined enough to work out the details. Um, Emmy seems to have this gift. Uh, the gift of tongues. The Greek word translated tongues literally means languages. Therefore, the gift of tongues is speaking in a language a person does not know, the, the, one, the one speaking, in order to minister to someone who does speak that language. And yes, this can, improve, this can include a private prayer language. But when expressed publicly, this gift as shown in the New Testament is mostly associated with evangelism and not ecstatic expression. Furthermore, if you practice tongues publicly without an interpreter, it's unbiblical. And that is the biggest challenge with how tongues are manifest today. Again, I believe this is a legitimate gift. I don't have it. But again, it's so often used, expressed, and lorded over others in an unbiblical and unhealthy way that... um, it's really tough to engage in that regard. And I can understand why people think it's important if they have the gift, but um, be careful. It's, uh, boy, I'm going to really get in trouble now. Um, About 10 years ago, this doesn't happen so much anymore. I think they finally got the message. But about 10 years ago, um, the last thing you wanted to do was be trapped somewhere with a vegan. You understand what I'm saying? And, and they think that evangelists are obnoxious. <laughs> you know? and, and I will tell you, I'm, I, I, I was very interested about 10 years ago in actually doing that, in becoming a vegan. Uh, because I read the book um, by uh, Scott Jurek, uh, uh, Eat and Run. He became the world's greatest ultramarathoner. Not marathoner, ultramarathoner. Those, those are races of 100 or more miles while being a vegan. And people said, you can't do it. It'll never happen. You won't get enough protein. And he said, I'm going to figure it out. As a vegan, he became the world's greatest ultramarathoner. And I read his book, and I thought, well, gee whiz, I think I want to try this. And then, and then I read about all the changes you had to make in your kitchen. And Jackie said, nah, you're not going to do that. So I said, okay. All right, anyway. 
Um, but that's, that's, you know, that's a thing. you've got to be careful with this stuff. Anyway, uh, then a few more. You go back up to verses 8 through 10, and there are some there that weren't mentioned. So uh, the gift of wisdom. This is an unusually high ability to apply knowledge to situations in order to make good decisions and to counsel others in biblical truth. Now, discipline is also, I'm sorry, wisdom is also a discipline. I mean, Proverbs says, here's the thing about wisdom. Get wisdom. So it, the Bible keeps telling us we need to go out and get wisdom. We need to acquire wisdom. Paul says that the path to wisdom is to understand God's will and to submit to it. He says that in Ephesians 5. Okay? So we are called to the discipline of getting wisdom. But some people have been unusually gifted by the Holy Spirit to not only get wisdom, but, but use it in incredibly effective ways. Just amazingly effective ways. The gift of knowledge. This is the unusually high affinity for both knowing God in a deep and abiding way and knowing biblical doctrine in a deep and abiding way and then be able to cogently articulate biblical doctrine to others. The gift of faith. This gift is especially associated with perseverance, patience, endurance, and long-suffering. It is an acute ability to remain faithful to God and his vision far after other people in the same situation have bailed out. And the gift of discernment. Uh, This is just the way I've described it. It's a high level of spidey sense about others. Uh, Mrs. Switzer is not here tonight, so I can say she's at work. She was here last week. She had to work tonight. So I can say this now openly. Jackie has this gift like nobody's business. It's like frightening. She has this gift like just nobody's business. Um, uh, she calls it her freakometer. <laughs> Whoop, 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 you know, that sort of thing. Anyway, just the ability to, to just talk to somebody and kind of know there's something not quite right here, okay? Before other ha- others have to discover it months after the destruction has happened. Verses 29 through 30, uh, these are rhetorical questions designed to reiterate Paul's point that all are gifted in different ways and we are to abide in and honor all the gifts as a body. And then he says... The higher gifts, context, are those practiced with love. I will show you a more excellent way. So in other words, the higher gifts can be any of these gifts as long as they're practiced in love. And here's what he says about that. Verse thir- chapter 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I do not have love, I am a noisy gong, I am nothing but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, see how he's talking about the gifts? And if I have all faith that I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, the gift of generosity that would be, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Then he defines, he gives the characteristics of love. Love is patient and kind Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Uh, Let me stop there before we finish. I want to say this about this little passage about love. Um, You all know probably how often this gets read at, at a wedding, right? Okay. And so it's put into the context of marriage. Um, so there's some tension there because I know people who, who, who have said, okay, that's not the context of, of uh, this passage. Marriage is not the context of this passage. The passage is using the gifts. Okay, you're right. And I'm a context person. You're, you're right. Okay. Um, but let me just ask you, just, let me just ask you if you're married or if you would like to be married or you were married or you're thinking about getting married, or you know somebody who's married. Think about a spouse who's patient and kind. That'd be a good thing, right? Okay? Uh, Think about a spouse who's not envious and boastful. Think about a spouse who's not arrogant. How many of you want to be married to somebody really arrogant? Okay? Um, Rude. It's not rude. Okay? All right. My wife is biblical. She's rude because the context is all wrong here. You see what I'm saying? Okay? Um, my, my spouse does not insist on her own way. She's not irritable or resentful. She doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing, but does rejoice in the truth. She bears all things. She lives with me for crying out loud. She believes all things. She hopes all things. She endures all things. Her love never ends. So there is some tension there, you know. So when I'm uh, officiating a a wedding, I I have a different message for the bride and groom. Those of you who have been to weddings that I do, but often they'll ask somebody, like a sister or something, to come up and read this passage. And I've always been like, yeah, sure, go ahead. Sounds good to me. But it's said in the context of the gifts. And this is, this is what Paul, Paul's trying to make this point because then he even comes back to it um, starting at the end of verse 8. As for prophecies, they will pass away. So now he's making, now he's making the point that we're not going to have to worry about these gifts in the new Jerusalem, but we will still have love. So he's trying to make you understand that the hierarchy of the gifts starts with love. Okay? Um, They'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. That's a reference to the, uh, to the new Jerusalem, to the second coming. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even if I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So Paul says you have to practice these within the context of love. Really important. So, holy cow, one minute left. There you go. That wasn't, that wasn't too bad, was it? All right, so... Um, the next two nights, um, hopefully we're going to be able to have some time for some questions as you ruminate about this stuff. Uh, we're going to have a little less material to cover and we'll be able to get into some questions and discussion as well. 
But next week, uh, if you want to read ahead, read uh, Romans 12, 1 through... Romans 12, 1 through 13. And read Ephesians 4, like 1 through 11, I think it is. All right, let me pray, and we'll see you Sunday, bright and early at 7.30, right? Right. <laughs> okay. how, how many of you are at the 7.30? Okay. Uh, that was, let me tell you something. Um, I know there weren't a whole lot of people there, but the people who were there were energetic. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. None of them have kids, Yeah. Actually, that's not true. We had six babies in childcare at the 7.30. We had only one person from four to nine. That was Tyler Thompson's daughter. Marissa? Like a sunrise what? Yeah, give it another month and a half. <laughs> so, by the way, Super Bowl Sunday this coming. Hello. You're wearing a Celtics jacket for crying out loud. All right. All right, so I'll do this again Sunday morning, but I'll do it here tonight in case you miss Sunday morning. Um, I do this every Super Bowl Sunday. All right, let's hear it for the Eagles. Let's hear it for the Chiefs. Let's hear it for I don't care, I want chicken wings. There you go. That's where I am. By the way, sorry you Chiefs fans, and I have friends in Kansas City. I don't know anybody in Philadelphia, but I think Philadelphia is going to win. I just cursed them. (laughs) What? Not when it comes to sports. I have the gift of pessimism when it comes to sports. I'm a... I live in Phoenix, okay? <laughs> and I know all about the Phoenix Suns curse. By the way, the curse is in full effect right now, isn't it, my brothers and sisters? Okay. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for your word and its truth. Thank you for these gifts, and I pray that we would be a body that recognizes our gifts and that we would use them to edify others. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you Sunday.